Pot Stir Podcast, where politics, religion, and history collide. And it's not always polite. When I'm not working, reading about politics, or researching for Pot Stir Podcast, I have other hobbies and interests, some more serious than others. One of the things I enjoy is watching professional wrestling. Some of my fondest memories as a kid was going over to my cousin's house on Saturdays to get my hair done. While I would be over there, we'd play Mortal Kombat on Sega Genesis, Blood On, Finish Em, and watch professional wrestling, particularly WWE, back when it was the WWF. My favorite wrestler back then was Earthquake, God rest his soul. It was during the early 1990s, after the golden era of the 80s, but right before the Attitude Era. For most wrestling fans, it's not generally a period in the WWF held in highest regard, but I can appreciate it because of the memories. After not following wrestling for a while, completely missed the Attitude Era, the Monday Night Wars, the early PG era, and most of John Cena's career, I started getting back into it about a year ago. It was something my husband Chuckles watched a lot, and one day I sat down and watched an episode of Monday Night Raw with him, and I got sucked into it. I watched WWE mostly, though I have watched some matches from other promotions, including Ring of Honor and New Japan. The appeal of pro wrestling to me is twofold. I'm well aware the outcomes of the matches are predetermined, and particularly in the WWE, a lot of what you see is scripted but I do enjoy the athleticism and what the wrestlers are able to do, and the physicality of it is something I find pretty awesome. The other part of it is that it does have storylines. Chuckles hates when I say this, but pro wrestling is essentially soap operas for dudes. I tend to view politics as a lot like pro wrestling. While there is gridlock between the parties publicly, in real life, Democratic and Republican politicians, lobbyists, and others in the process tend to be friends or associates, Many of them hang out together, go to the same places, wine and dine together. In 2004, President George W. Bush was seeking his second term against Senator John Kerry. They were from different parties, and the negative ads were pretty brutal. Swift vote veterans for truth, I'm looking at you. But Bush and Kerry were from the same secret society, Skull and Bones. Donald Trump has been friends with the Clintons for decades. And as much as ultra-conservatives focus on the influence of billionaire George Soros on the Democratic Party, Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner were rubbing shoulders with him just last year in the Hamptons. One of the Republican Koch brothers, as well as several other Democratic and Republican politicians and influencers, were having a great time together at this Hamptons party. If we just listen to the top stories and read the headlines, we see that the Republicans and Democrats are at each other's throats and nothing gets done. But if we peek behind the curtain, it's easy to see that it's all kayfabe. While the politicians, lobbyists, and other influential actors divide the country for real, to them, it's all a work. I'm your host, Jay Poole. Right now, the big news stories on the major news networks, MSNBC, Fox News, CNN, are the investigation being conducted by special counsel Robert Mueller, the Stormy Daniels payoff to not disclose Donald Trump's affair with her, and the confirmation hearings for some of Trump's picks. And each outlet has their own biases, their own focus on which stories are important and what the public should think about them. Very little objective press exists from the major news networks. And I do think the bias itself is very important. Not all bias is bad. The idea that being in the middle is always reasonable is a fallacy, 
and the truth often has a bias. But misguiding people is another thing entirely. The common theme with the major outlets is favoring the powerful and often demonizing the least powerful in our society. We are moving into that territory now, and there isn't any accountability for that. So we're in a situation where the media, even the liberal media, defers to a president that has lied, cheated, and stole pretty much his entire life, and being the leader of the free world has only emboldened him to do more. These journalists bring in comedian Michelle Wolf to the White House Correspondents' Dinner, apparently without being acquainted with her work, and then get mad when she does what she's there for, tells jokes. It seems that these journalists, who were upset with Wolf, who was not apparent shaming Sir Huckabee Sanders, by the way, were simply responding in a way to placate dear leader and those who serve him. I've mentioned several times on Pot Stirrer Podcast the need for a free press. A good part of the problem, though, is that we don't really have a free press. The press in the U.S., other than NPR and PBS, is privately owned. And that in and of itself isn't necessarily a problem. I'm not advocating for a Soviet or Chinese model state-run media where all information about what the government is doing is curated by the government itself. But when there is an absence of any regulations that ensure the press remains a free press and the press itself is largely monopolized, the end result is not that much different than a government-run press. Newspapers were a much bigger industry in generations past than now. Newspapers have always had some leeway in terms of how they cover the news. This is why there are always Republican-leaning papers, Democratic-leaning papers, and papers that were geared towards ethnic and racial and religious groups. Now, things were once different for TV and radio. The Fairness Doctrine was a policy instituted by the Federal Communications Commission, or FCC, that was in place starting in 1949 that required licensed radio and television broadcasters to present controversial issues of public interest and present fair and balanced coverage of those issues. This was often done through devoting airtime or space to differing points of view. The Fairness Doctrine had its roots in earlier regulations requiring that federally licensed radio and later TV stations serve the public interest. The interests of displaying balanced viewpoints were often opposed, primarily by conservatives, argument being that government regulation itself restricted free speech and that government itself should not have the power to decide what is considered fair. But others argued that the Fairness Doctrine allowed for increased quality and quantity of news programming and allowed more opportunities to provide arguments on different sides. When challenged in court, the regulation held up mainly because at the time, few radio and TV stations served a given market. Up until the 1980s and the rise of cable TV, most cities were served by maybe two or three TV stations, and in some less populated areas, as few as one. So the importance of allowing people who held different viewpoints equal access was even more apparent. The Fairness Doctrine gave many everyday Americans easily accessible information so they could form relatively informed views of issues of the day. And it gave Americans whose voices were being shut out of the airwaves some recourse when they were being censored by broadcast stations. In the 1950s and 60s, WLBT-TV, an NBC affiliate in Jackson, Mississippi, was a staunchly pro-segregationist TV station 
that would actively censor integrationist viewpoints in Black political leaders. For example, NAACP Special Counsel and future U.S. Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall gave an interview on the Today Show in 1955, and the feed to WLBT was cut with the statement, sorry, cable down. The station manager readily admitted cutting the cord, stating that TV networks had become instruments of Negro propaganda. This sign was used regularly at the Jackson Affiliate when Black leaders or civil rights groups were shown on NBC. WLBT had ties with white citizens' councils, who were segregationist civic groups in the South, and even had a white citizens' council bookstore in their lobby. The station aired a show later in the decade where participants talked about the social benefits of segregation. They also barred local Black politicians from any airtime or from purchasing ads. They would not show Black Americans at all on this TV station unless they were under arrest. This was all happening in Jackson, Mississippi, a southern city that at the time was 42% Black. The United Church of Christ, led in this case by Reverend Dr. Everett Parker, as well as Black community members, made complaints to the FCC stating WLBT was in violation of the Fairness Doctrine, but the FCC denied their positions, stating that only individuals who were interested in taking over the station had standing to challenge them. They then took the legal route, where in 1969, the U.S. Court of Appeals ruled against the station. In his decision, Warren Burger, who would later become Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, wrote, After nearly five decades of operation, the broadcast industry does not seem to have grasped the simple fact that a broadcast license is a public trust subject to termination for breach of duty. The decision forced the FCC to enforce its own rules regarding the Fairness Doctrine. Because the station refused to abide by the ruling, they were stripped of their broadcast license in 1971. Only one other TV station in the country ever lost their broadcast license due to the Fairness Doctrine. The station was later taken over by a nonprofit, racially mixed group called Communications Improvement Incorporated, who hired employees of color and neutralized their news coverage. This allowed the station to obtain a permanent broadcast license in 1980. So what happened to the Fairness Doctrine? By the 1980s, conservatives had more government support, especially at the top. And in 1987, the FCC under President Ronald Reagan eliminated the Fairness Doctrine, citing concerns over journalistic freedom. Yeah, sure. Anyway, Congress then passed a bill reinstating the Fairness Doctrine, but Reagan vetoed the bill. Since the 1987 elimination of the Fairness Doctrine, there has been a rise in conservative talk radio, and right-wing voices such as Rush Limbaugh, Sean Hannity, Laura Ingram, Michael Savage, Glenn Beck, which is a precursor for the conservative pundry we see on outlets such as Fox News, and siloed news coverage. With the rise in cable, including cable news, the repeal of the Fairness Doctrine has allowed news networks to exist that cater to specific audiences that dictate to their audiences what issues are important and curate a narrative for their captive audience. The repeal of the Fairness Doctrine is not the only factor leading to overly biased media and a lack of a truly free press. The big business takeover of major media is the other piece of this. With the rise in cable and satellite TV, subscription radio like SiriusXM, and especially the internet, 
Free enterprise allows us so many choices, so we can essentially vote with our feet. If we don't like what the slant on one channel website is, we can simply switch to something else. Americans have such a huge variety in what information we have access to and consume. Or do we? Potstirer Podcast will be back after this. This is Editorial by Jay. Editorial by Jay is a very short segment where I give my views on an issue that I won't devote an entire episode to. It's pretty informal, and it's really just what it is, just a short moment where I give my thoughts on a story or issue. Many of you might be familiar with Alfie Evans, the British toddler who recently died just shy of his second birthday. He was diagnosed with a neurodegenerative disorder that left him in a semi-vegetative state for more than a year. Doctors said there was nothing that could be done to save him. Eventually, they detected brain impairment that was so severe, they were concerned that further treatment would only cause Alfie pain. The doctors moved to take Alfie off life support, but Alfie's parents opposed this. They wanted to try experimental treatments in other countries, including the United States, but the British courts stepped in, ruling it would be against Alfie's best interest to leave the hospital and be sent elsewhere. Recently, the Vatican offered him citizenship and to take him in for additional testing, but the British courts again stepped in, stating Alfie was still a British subject and that it was not in his best interest to leave the hospital. Sadly, Alfie passed away on April 28th. To be honest, this case is giving me mixed feelings. It's hard not to feel awful for Alfie's parents. Parents shouldn't have to bury their own child. I think that in general, parents should have the ultimate say if they want to seek a second, third, fourth opinion to save their children if they're suffering from a life-threatening condition. If the parents were able to come to the US or to Italy or elsewhere to seek further opinions on a condition that was apparently so rare that doctors couldn't give it a diagnosis, they should have been allowed to do so. But there's a couple of things about the reactions to the case that don't sit well with me. A number of conservatives and libertarians have taken the Alfie Evans case as an indictment against nationalized healthcare. But I think that view is extremely misguided. It wasn't the NHS that kept Alfie from being taken to seek additional options. It was the British courts and the laws they have in place that allow them to step in when they feel it's in the best interest for them to do so. Remember, Alfie's doctors were concerned that further treatment would cause him suffering. While we can disagree with what the courts did, the decisions were not made in malice. This argument against universal health care also ignores the fact that the care Alfie received, which was for over a year, was funded by the British government. The parents did not have huge medical bills to pay off for their son's care. If a similar case happened in the United States, the parents would be limited by their insurance, their income, and private funds. Charities might step in, but private charities have a limited capacity to help and are no substitute for an expansive system that the government runs. There are many Americans who suffer from chronic and life-threatening illnesses who don't get the care they need because the insurance might not cover it and they can't afford the shortfall. And cuts to the Affordable Care Act attempted in the age of Trump will only make it more difficult for Americans to afford to pay when, God forbid, something goes wrong and they or their families end up with a major condition or illness. The U.S. spends exorbitant amounts of money on health care but with worse outcomes than the rest of the Western world. I've talked about this in other episodes. The problem isn't that we're spending too much, 
is that a for-profit model of healthcare is absolutely insane and we should catch up with the rest of the West and have coverage for all our citizens. But I digress, back to Alfie. While this case was very problematic and tragic, the laws in Britain protecting the best interests of children exist for a reason. While Alfie's parents truly had the best of intentions, we can't always assume that every parent has the best of intentions for their children. I think of, for example, the Gypsy Blanchard case. If you're not familiar with that, look into that one. Parents don't always have their kids' best interests at heart. And in any case, children should not be treated as property. We hear occasionally about situations where children are not allowed certain types of care that could save their lives due to the parents' religious restrictions, such as Jehovah's Witnesses not being allowed to receive donated blood, or the children of Christian scientists not being allowed medical care. These are times when the inclination to preserve life and the right to religious freedom are not in alignment. We also have to remember that as terrible as this case was, we have had legal battles between families and doctors and between families and government here in the US. It's not like our lack of universal health care makes that much of a difference. To give you an idea, you might want to look into the Terry Schiavo case and the Jahai McMath case to give you an idea. In any case, my point is that this kind of stuff is hard, death is hard, and throwing in issues such as healthcare and pro-life just overcomplicate and cloud the issue. A young child died, and that is sad. So I read conservative, liberal, libertarian, progressive viewpoints on this, and the best point I read on this is an editorial about Alfie Evans in the Charlotte Observer by Isaac J. Bailey. He says, though I don't doubt the sincerity of some of those who were outraged by Alfie's predicament, something else was also at play beyond the naked politics. They were likely motivated less by trying to beat back a supposed culture of death than by an irreconcilable fear of death itself, or the inability to have the final say over when we leave Earth. We don't do dying well. Now. Back to Potstirer Podcast. In 1983, 90% of U.S. media was owned by 50 companies. Today, 90% of media is owned by five companies. Five. This is the list, and with mergers and acquisitions, this is often changing. Comcast, Disney, Time Warner, 21st Century Fox, and national amusements. To find news and entertainment outside of these five companies requires a great deal of research and effort, the kind of time investment most everyday Americans with work, school, raising, and taking care of families just don't have. So you might say this, let me make it easier on myself. I'll just cut the cord. Screw Fox News, MSNBC, and CNN. Forget paying for my indoctrination. I'll just watch my local news with all these trusted and familiar faces I've been seeing for years. My dad grew up with Susie the anchor, and I see her every once in a while when I'm shopping at Kroger. And Bob the weather guy's wife leads my kid's Girl Scout troop. Mmm, thin mints. Alright, sounds good, right? So you might turn on your local news and hear something like this. 
Hi, I'm Fox San Antonio's Jessica Headley. And I'm Ryan Wolf. Our, our greatest, greatest responsibility, responsibility is, is to serve, serve our, our Treasure Valley communities. The El Paso, Las Cruces communities. Eastern Iowa communities. Mid-Michigan communities. We are extremely proud of the quality, balanced journalism that CBS4 News produces. But we are concerned about trouble and trying to be responsible, one-sided news stories plaguing our country. Plaguing our country. The sharing of biased and false news has become all too common on social media. More alarming, some media outlets publish these same fake stories without checking facts first. The sharing of biased and false, false news has, has become, become all too common, common on, on social, social media. media. More alarming, some media this is extremely dangerous to our democracy. 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 Sorry to break it to you, but you can't escape news silos that easily. Sinclair Broadcasting Group, a pro-Trump media giant, owns 193 local TV affiliates, reaching 40% of households. With the acquisition of Tribune Media and plans to skirt around the FCC's regulations barring one company from owning more than 39% of local affiliates, Sinclair's reach will then be 72% of American households. The propaganda-style fake news statement they force local affiliates to read that undermine their own professions along with must-run segments such as terrorism alerts and segments with favorable news about dear leader from former Trump advisor Boris Epstein, examples of an overarching trend that occurs when Sinclair takes over local stations. According to researchers Gregory J. Martin and Josh McCrane, when Sinclair buys affiliates, there's a shift on local news from covering local politics to covering national politics. The slant shifts to the right, and there's a slight decrease in viewership. The researchers also found that for those who still watch, their overall intake of news shifted to the right after their local station was taken over by Sinclair. Why does this matter? Martin and McCrane say this, Given the decline of local print media, local TV news is one of the few remaining sources of locally focused journalism. The substantial post-acquisition drop in local coverage at Sinclair-acquired stations can be expected to reduce viewers' knowledge of the activities of local officials. They go on to say, the rightward shift in content at Sinclair-acquired stations can also be expected to have real consequences for election outcomes and mass polarization. Does this sound like free press or journalistic freedom to you? The thing that is really concerning about this is that even though fewer people watch local news now than they did in the past, local news has more viewership than cable and network news shows. On top of that, local news is often a local institution. People have a lot of trust in their local news. People grow up and live life seeing these same faces on TV daily. 
And sometimes they even see the folks on the local news in their communities. And see, using the trust people have left in media against them is the thing about this that is particularly insidious. There's an illusion of choice because the government itself isn't calling all the shots. But the effect is much the same. Since we have huge media conglomerates who are in bed with government, there is no need for government to control the narrative because big business is doing it for them. So if the media is controlled by big business and they are controlling much of the narrative, what news stories are we not hearing? Let me give you just a few examples. The Department of Justice is revising its manual for federal prosecutors. The recommendation to pursue cases that involve religious liberty has been added. But the section need for a free press and public trial was removed entirely. Another section referring to redistricting and racial gerrymandering was also removed. Language allowing an individualized assessment of cases and that charging decisions should fairly reflect the defendant's criminal conduct were removed in its place. This was says, once the decision to prosecute has been made, the attorney for the government should charge and pursue the most serious, readily provable offenses. This includes charges with mandatory minimum sentences. But these changes that will undoubtedly affect the civil rights and freedoms of millions of Americans were not major news. If you think Trump is not instituting a Muslim ban, think again. The Department of Homeland Security, under Trump's direction, is exploring experimental surveillance applications and social media screening that are causing alarm among experts who contend that the use of the software would amount to automated profiling of Muslims as well as other minorities. In addition, U.S. embassies are intensifying their screening processing as they've been directed to identify populations warranting increasing scrutiny. In practice, this has meant Muslim applicants are often facing arbitrary visa denials. Between January 2017 and November 2017, Muslim refugee admissions have fallen from 50% to less than 10%. And if you think a blue wave will stop this, well, according to The Intercept, judges are giving Trump a great deal of leeway when it comes to his immigration ban. And between his continued demonization of Muslims and Latinos, let's not forget them, we may be seeing some much darker days ahead. Oh, and if you or someone you know still believes the Republican Party is the moral party and it's Christians that are being persecuted here in the U.S., here's one for you. House Speaker Paul Ryan recently fired House Chaplain Father Patrick Conroy, then walked it back a couple days ago. Why? It's believed it's because of a prayer led by Conroy on the House floor back in November. This was while the tax bill was being hammered out. You know, the tax bill the GOP sold its soul for. Father Conroy prayed, As legislation on taxes continues to be debated this week and next, may all members be mindful that the institutions and structures of our great nation guarantee the opportunities that have allowed some to achieve great success while others continue to struggle. May their efforts these days guarantee that there are not winners and losers under new tax laws, but benefits balanced and shared by all Americans. 
It is also suspected that some GOP lawmakers, such as GOP House Rep Mark Walker of North Carolina, were against Conroy in the role because he's Catholic. Walker stated that the next chaplain should have adult children. This litmus test would exclude the vast majority of Catholic priests because priests are required to take a vow of celibacy. Conroy is only the second Catholic to hold the position. The thing is, none of these stories are front and center, though they really should be. Even though it's easy to see Trump's corruption in the swamp of his own making even reading the headlines, the mainstream media, both liberal and conservative media, are burying the most insidious acts committed by our country's leadership. It matters more if the right to vote is being endangered by our government. It matters more if we are going to see a surge of people without resources being warehoused in private prisons due to the mandatory minimums started by President Bill Clinton and perpetuated by Donald Trump and his AG Jeff Sessions. It matters if the land of opportunity is being shut off from those whose very lives depend on it simply due to the faith they believe in. And it matters if our leadership cannot stand feeling condemned by the prayer of a priest speaking truth to power. And in an age where democracy is melting away, much of it behind the scenes, it's important to ask ourselves why. This is the problem with the argument that big government is the problem is the lack of government accountability to the very people it is purported to serve that is the problem. Government has a purpose. One of its main purposes is to protect the public interest. But years of regulation being eroded, the Fairness Doctrine and many, many others have led us down a road to plutocracy, where the elites control the government, industry, and the narrative. And this is not good for Americans. Yet, we don't even know it's a problem. And until we fix it, and this goes beyond any blue wave, because both parties share some blame for this, freedom will only be a distant memory. Check out our website today, potswearpodcast.com, for previous episodes, special presentations, announcements, merch, and all things Potstirer Podcast. You can find our show on iTunes, Google Play, and most other podcatchers. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe, give us five stars, leave a review, share, and tell your friends. Thank you for listening and supporting Potstirer Podcast. I'm Jay Poole. Let's fight for America's future because freedom is not free.